I got an interesting email asking me about resources for teaching children about beauty. So I thought that that would be a good thing for us to chat about. And I will get to that in a minute. I wanted to mention to my listeners here that uh, my husband and I, on a long road trip, were talking about an idea that we had. It's funny, we had this idea separately. And I think it's so funny how when you've been married for a long time, this often happens. I mean, it probably happens when you're married for a short amount of time too, that you're thinking of something and then your spouse turns out also to have been thinking about it. And I've been thinking about my podcast and how in general, I really tend to need somebody to talk to. Maybe it's from being an only child and just not growing up with siblings to talk to. All my thoughts are interior. And in a way, if I'm not writing about something it's very hard for me to just talk about it when there isn't another person there in the room. I noticed with my kids that they had no problem just talking to themselves out loud and would often just walk around as little kids talking to themselves. But I don't think I really ever did that as a child. I think that um, the silence was pretty complete. Again, I was, I was an only child, so maybe that's why I don't really know. Anyway... Podcasting is not something that comes supernatural to me, even though it's funny because if I'm doing an interview with someone, if someone is interviewing me, I can definitely answer their questions and go on for a really long time as anybody who has heard an interview with me can attest. Sometimes it's a little embarrassing how how much I can talk as if somebody pushed a button and there I go. But this format isn't as easy for me, I think maybe because I'm not really thinking about my audience. I'm not thinking about the person I'm talking to. I'm kind of focusing on making sure the computer is doing its thing and just trying to get my thoughts in order, whereas they seem to come more naturally if I'm asked a question. Anyway, my husband also had been thinking about his podcast. I don't know if you know that on this site, I hope you know that on the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture site, um, my husband has lots of podcasts and he does interviews with people and they're all very edifying. But he was also thinking about livening it up a bit. So anyway, we're on this long road trip and he brought it up. He said, I have been having this thought. What if we did a podcast together? And that kind of surprised me a little bit, I have to say, because he isn't in general someone who just thinks that it's great fun to chit chat. I don't know that he listens to podcasts where people chit chat a lot or bandy about their ideas. And I I kind of think that, and I mean, he actually sort of said that he regarded his job as perhaps getting me to stop talking, but I won't let that happen. Don't worry. Anyway, that is our idea that we're banding about. I'll talk about it more at the end when I'm done talking about this subject here, and I'll come back to it and maybe what the format of this podcast would be. And then if you have any thoughts about it, maybe you could shoot an email to me or to him and my email you can find at the LMLD blog. So it'd be lmldblog at 
blogspot.com and that's like mother, like daughter. So it's LMLD blog at gmail.com. And you can just shoot me an email about that. And his email is philip with one L dot lawler at comcast.net. So shoot him an email at philip with one L dot lawler at comcast.net and see you can tell him what your ideas would be about our podcast and I'll talk about it a little more at the end of this one. Welcome to the Home Truths Good Cheer Society. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. For those who don't know me, I'm Lila Marie Lawler, Auntie Lila. I'm the self-appointed collective memory curator. I write about competence, learning some skills of homemaking, and why we should do all those things on my blog, like mother, like daughter, and in my books, including the Summa Domestica, Order and Wonder in Family Life, which is a three-volume box set, available at Sophia Institute Press. I'm all about the restoration of home in brightness, warmth, and joy. So anyway, I got this email from this lovely lady, and I'm just going to summarize it for you because I think it's something that uh, it happens to be about beauty and I am going to talk about beauty and teaching our children beauty. The subject line really was how do we teach beauty to our children? And But it also is applicable to other things because suddenly we will be struck with anxiety about the things we have not maybe taught our children. And there are ways to address all those things. But what I would like to say is that there is a way to teach children the fundamentals of what they need to learn. And that is what I try to present when I'm talking about education. And this email really brought that idea to the fore. So I thought I'd just summarize it for you a little bit. So teaching children about beauty And she says that she has read my volume on education. As I think my listeners know, I wrote uh, the Summa Domestica, which is a three-volume work that kind of synthesizes all the things I've been talking about on the blog for so many years, all the aspects of homemaking. And of course, education is a very important aspect of homemaking because as parents, we are meant in marriage to be procreative, to bring children into the world, and to form and educate them. And uh, she says that she understands about exposing children to beautiful pictures and books and things, and that that rightly orders their case. And she brings up the film that I had recommended maybe a few weeks ago on the blog. I brought it up a, a bunch, and it's a film of Roger Scruton, a video that he made called Why Beauty Matters. And it's a very interesting film because he really, really delves into the question of beauty and ugliness and ugly art and bad art and what makes something beautiful. And I think the main virtue of the film is that he really dares to say there are some things that are ugly and the ugliness is destructive. 
And there's something about it that we need to resist and we need to come down on the side of beauty. But as she points out, it is not suitable for children at all because he shows examples of ugly art. And I mean, I think he just sort of has to. I mean, these are famous works of art, quote unquote, that are profane and violent and blasphemous and really should not be shown to children at all. So then the question is, well, what do we do to teach our children about art? And what about when our child says, well, I don't really see the difference. I think that building may not be, you know, I might not like it, but I don't know why you say it's ugly. I don't get it. So the question is, how do we teach objective standards of beauty? And she just brings up that an art teacher in a school, probably in our area, and I think is probably representative of our teachers in general saying, everything is art. And so then the child is saying, well, the world is telling me that everything is art. And what do you, my parents have to say about that? And then the parent is somewhat taken aback because I think most of us do have this tendency or even, you know, we fall back on, and I can even remember there's something in GK Chesterton where he says, somebody challenges you on what do you value about Western civilization, I think was the example he gave. And you just sort of end up stuttering and vaguely waving your arms around because it is very hard to answer those sorts of questions. But there's something that important here that I think that we've missed because we can talk about what the objective nature of beauty, we can talk about that and we can talk about how to express it to someone else. And actually I do spend a fair amount of time, a lot of time, the talks that I give are about beauty and its objective nature. And I go into a lot of details about it, but something important here regarding children that I'm afraid that we may be missing has to do with the difficulty of teaching first principles retroactively. And this is something that we really, because we're so caught up, I think many of us in this time of extreme conflict in people's opinions, we are caught up in all of that. And it's hard for us to remember and to accept that nature unfolds in the development of any living thing over time. And that development happens according to a pattern. And so, for instance, I mean, just thinking about my garden and the fact that it's been quite cool this spring, you know, I tried to put, I mean, my lettuces are doing great and my peas already have pods because those are cool weather things. But the things that are warmer climate type vegetables, tender things like tomatoes and eggplants. I mean, they to varying degrees, they struggle with the sort of weather that we've been having. And my eggplants in particular are really, really struggling. They are out there hanging on to the ledge with their fingernails. And I can't, in June, I can't very easily rescue this eggplant. If there's something that has to happen to this eggplant plant, it's funny that eggplant has the word plant in its name. So, but are like, let's say, uh, you know, whatever heat loving plant it is, um, my peppers or my eggplants, I can't go back at this point and do anything about the fact that at a very important stage 
of its development, it was just too cold. And that eggplant is going to struggle. Now, it may produce some fruit. It may not. I may just have to yank it out and plant something else there. The tomatoes are doing okay, but I can tell you there's a huge difference if the spring is warm. The eggplants will be much more flourishing. Now, just a little note while I'm talking about these things, I want you to remember that the eggplants just are created by God and they're not subject to the fall and they just do what they're meant to do. But human beings persons have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So he can make straight lines with whatever crookedness there is. And we should not despair or give up hope because that would be wrong. We have to trust and we have to also accept our mistakes. And we have to be, to realize that our mistakes are not, they're just our mistakes. It's because we are fallen and God can do great things. And in fact, if we can just humbly accept that we make mistakes, then that shows his glory all the more. So don't give up hope, but let me just talk about this in these terms, because I think it helps us to understand what form the education should take. So leaving aside the eggplants, I think we can just see as an analogy or as an illustration that we have a nature and that our nature has to develop according to a pattern. And so it's better to lay a foundation and it's better to understand what that foundation is. And in the specific thing of teaching beauty it is actually very specific and practical what we can do so that we're not left at the end of the process, or let's say at the completion of the portion of the education of our child where that he spends with us, of just saying, oh, wow, like we just really didn't address these things. So that kind of goes to, as I said before, just a lot of things that come up like this, where it's almost as if actually our whole system of education is now based on trying to remedy mistaken ideas because we have forgotten about this natural development. And we almost have this assumption and go through the whole process of education thinking that children begin their lives knowing all the things that we already know. And I had discussed that at length about choosing in my other podcast. One of, um, if you go back, you'll see it's a previous episode of this podcast where I talked about the criteria for choosing movies and books for children. And it's based on this idea that we have to just understand that children don't know the things that I think somehow we assume they know. They have to learn things and that learning is part of their development. And it's up to us to recognize that they actually are just far more innocent of the controversies than we realize the controversies that are consuming us. So this is the reason that I'm horrified at our contemporary ideas of education. And this has even permeated the church. And so, and I think probably not just the Catholic church, because you will see catechesis based on introducing children to ideas in order to refute the ideas and that's horrifying. I'll get to that in a sec. So for and let's just take another uh, example, though. Uh, let me give you an example of this, which would be in science. So in education, let's just say we say to ourselves, well, I need a curriculum to teach my child the basics of science. But what I have noticed about textbooks, and I do write about this in the Summa Domestica, is that 
um, so many textbooks begin, and these are textbooks for pretty young children, begin with the premise that the child is already aware of the political weaponization of certain topics. For instance, evolution as a theory of the origin of species, or another example would be climate change. So those are examples of scientism, of where certain scientific ideas have been taken out of the realm of the scientific process and they become politicized. But if the children aren't first educated in the causes of things calmly and without reference to error and causes means essences, what things are, which is what the word species describes, how will they spot manipulations of the scientific method? How will a child who hasn't been taught that objects around them, living organisms around them, all the different things in the world belong to categories, that they have essences, then how will they know that somebody is manipulating those categories? When the scientific method itself is meant to observe essences and causes. So it's just starting the scientific education from the wrong end. If we start by saying, well, some people say that man's activity is changing the climate, we're starting very, very, very far down the road in a complex matter that involves a whole set of political and economic controversies that the child does not know anything about and that we cannot stop to describe to them and to explain to them if what we're trying to do is get them to understand something about the observation of nature and the use of the scientific method. We're just starting at the wrong end. Another example would be sex education. And I've written about this extensively. I have a couple of podcasts about it and articles, and there's a couple of chapters in my book. So um, I'll refer you to that. But I think that this is a good example that I'll just summarize as saying that we're going to start with a young child by telling him all the ways that people get sexuality wrong. And if you object and you say, well, no, that is actually harming the child to do that. We first have to get them to understand about persons and about uh, respect for the body and all those other things. The response I will get will be, but they have to know so they don't go wrong. You, Auntie Lila, do not understand how bad things are. Well, Auntie Lila does understand how bad things are and they've been bad for a really long time. And that is precisely why I insist that we first have to form the child with a healthy mind and body of innocently being able to understand the way God created things before way down along the road, we begin to introduce the way that things go bad. So Yes, this is what I want to say is that it's very hard to detoxify someone after the fact when really what we ought to have been doing is forming them to be able to resist the toxin in the first place. Children start out full of wonder and trust. We can't allow our anxiety to derail that wonder and trust and stunt them. It would be as if that thing happened, which is that we stuck the eggplants out there too early and they got stunted by the cold. And that is in fact what is happening to our children. The proper way to educate them is 
to use a word term that's a little fraught, um, is to capitalize on the wonder and awe and trust in authority that they have to capitalize on those qualities and be worthy of them, to be trustworthy, and to do our best to show them as they are developing the wonders of the world, of creation, so that they can indeed know what truth is and what beauty is. I'm never tired of pointing out the ancients put it this way. They said that if we want to be dealing with rational creatures, which is what man is, man is a rational creature. Man is a creature, the unique creature who is both material and spiritual. And above all, man's reason is what connects him to the truth. And the ancients said that in order to come to the point where we're dealing with a rational creature, with this child, we must teach him to like and dislike what he ought. That simply means teach him to respond correctly to the things around him. To a great extent, children will already naturally do this, but I think every mom knows that the child will, the very, very young child will, for instance, reach down in curiosity towards his diaper and we have to say no you know, this is something that is dirty and won't do you any good and can make you sick and I need you not to touch it. And similarly, you know, he goes, the three-year-old goes and plays out. I mean, right now a three-year-old should know, but let's say a two-year-old goes out and starts digging in the ground and finds a worm. And by, even by the age of two, he should have been taught by the adults around him not to put the worm in his mouth. And if a child runs around, like say a five-year-old runs around and has some strange plastic ribbon or something and is wrapping around his head, or she's got some clown type of outfit and is prancing around in it, at some point we just say, it's just not pretty. It's ugly. It's not a respectful thing to do. It's not good. And that little by little they learn, they learn to control themselves. They learn that some things are ugly and bad and some things are beautiful and good. And as Aristotle points out, this does have to happen before the age of reason. This learning to like and dislike what they ought. Otherwise, he says, the study of principles later on after the age of reason has dawned and of knowing them will be impossible in the ordinary course of things. So beauty really is the radiance of order, harmony, unity, and clarity. And well, we can say it's the radiance of order, harmony, and unity, and it itself has clarity. So in its radiance, it allows us to see those things. And this implies that we must have vigilance over the disordered, the discordant, and the fractured especially when it comes to our children. Of course, we have to have vigilance over those things for ourselves so that we can teach our children by being vigilant over them. But of course, we can't teach anything that we don't already have. So how, this is what this person was asking, dear Auntie Lila, how do I teach beauty to my child? I can't show him Roger Scruton's film, Why Beauty Matters, because it contains some really truly offensive things. I don't know how old the child was, but 
I assume. Um, I mean, I think that probably, you know, a 17-year-old, 16, 17-year-old child could see the things, but certainly a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old child should not be watching that film. So the things that we teach them is going to go through them really quickly because I want to say that I have really expounded on them in my book, The Zoom and Domestica. So I'm just going to briefly touch upon them just to show that there's a reason why I put all these things in the book. It's not just that they're nice things. It's that they are things that actually will teach a child beauty in a way that's not anxious, in a way that's calm. And when the child is learning what is beautiful, then that beauty will radiate the truth. And so he will be learning all the things he needs to learn. So the early education of the child, and by that I mean up through high school, needs to include number. So this is education for beauty, needs to include number. Number is really has to do with proportion. So it's really the hinge of the door to the world of ideas, the door that swings into the world of ideas from the material world. So we read in Wisdom chapter 11, verse 21, that God has arranged all things in sequence, number, and proportion. Learning about number is delightful to a child. Children love to learn about numbers. They love to count things. And in the process of doing those things, they are learning what numbers are. And in doing that, they learn how the numbers relate to each other, which leads to harmony, proportion, and then architecture, which is based on geometry. So in harmony, we are immediately thinking about music. So teaching music in our time, it has dwindled to be some sort of add-on or extracurricular, is actually fundamental to the child and to anyone learning about the objective nature of beauty. Harmony really has to do with proportion. And um, I do go into this in my book, but I also um, reference you to more complete explanations. But anyone who knows anything about harmony, like the very first lessons in harmony have to do with the actual physical nature of sound and how in the sound waves, there is a fittingness between the physical waves that go together and that produce good music. And there is a jarring quality or an unfittingness or a repulsion or ugliness in the waves that clash with each other. And there is even in harmony the waves that, the proportions of the sound, that they do fit together, but they lead you to another proportion, which then gives closure and finality and unity. So harmony is actually the key to beauty. And music as a study is in the quadrivium, it is behind each of the four branches of study or the four means of completing one's education after going through the trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. We then come to the four studies in the quadrivium, which all have to do with music. So the quadrivium in medieval times when the universities were established by Catholics and along the lines of ancient practice have all to do with mathematics, with arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music in the sense of producing musical sounds. But when we delve into it, we find out that each one of those studies actually does relate to music in the sense of music as proportion, as harmony. 
So really music is a key to developing the child's understanding of beauty. And architecture also, so buildings also reflect proportion. And when we look at a beautiful building, and Roger Scruton was someone who really spoke about this all the time, and it was a passion of his. And in that film, he he explains this to a certain extent, that a building that we can relate to and that somehow awakens in us a sense of beauty and of fittingness that building will have proportions in its structure that actually can be translated into music. They can be translated into the intervals that create harmonic sound. And the other study would be geometry, especially in high school studying Euclid, or at least a text based on Euclid, which would be the Jacobs text. And for that, what is so important There are two very, very important things in the study of geometry, and one of them that goes to the child being able to apprehend beauty and being able to, in his own mind, make a distinction between something that's ugly and something that's beautiful and not just say, well, everything is art or everything is beautiful and it depends on the person and the person's preference is, so in geometry, is what constitutes a proof. So you have to show the steps. And the truth is that in that study, shouting does nothing. All that matters is that you went step by step until you, in a valid method, arrived at the conclusion to show that your conclusion is founded. And so that means that it has nothing to do with the emotions. And the person who is constructing the proof in geometry simply has to be rational. And that is wonderful training that deeply and thoroughly trains the mind to detach itself from any thought that there can be recourse to simply making a gesture or referring to how one feels and that you're either right or you're wrong. Another very important part of geometry, very I'd say the fundamental thing about geometry that is so important to know is that as much as we construct proofs with the various theorems in geometry, and it's all very rational and systematic, it begins with givens. You cannot do geometry without simply accepting certain things as true. So Euclid just starts out with his axioms, and a point is a point, and a line is a line, and you just have to accept it. There's no way to prove what a point is. It simply just is. And that's the lesson of, for my readers who've read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, this is the lesson of that work, which is that we must accept the givens if we want to know things, and if we want to be able to think and to act. Without the acceptance of the givens that certain things just are, for instance, that a thing cannot be and not be at the same time, which is the principle enunciated by Aristotle of non-contradiction, but of course has always existed. It just simply is. A thing is or it is not. It cannot be and not be at the same time. If we do not accept that given and proceed without demanding that it be proven or demonstrated, 
we will immediately disintegrate into chaos. And this is what C.S. Lewis talks about in The Abolition of Man. His whole argument is that without that acceptance, we will lose our humanity and simply become slaves, we'll simply become subject to raw power. So it really is the crucial, crucial part of education, the crucial fundamental basis of education is to say there are givens and using those givens, accepting those givens, we can go on to speak rationally about things, including beauty. By the way, geometry should be a pleasure, not a grind. And we should have satisfaction in making sense out of complexity and even out of what seems to be chaos. And so we should not impose this on children as some sort of desperate duty, but we should really delight in it and encourage them to delight in it. So those would be the studies that would be so important to the child's education after the age of reason would be music, proportion, seeing proportion in architecture, and then in art, geometry, and a lot of other things like grammar, the grammar of languages, which is very analogous to algebra, and especially studying a language that's highly inflected. So that's why the classical education does prioritize studying Latin. And really, I mean, the study of any foreign language can really help, but Latin, as Dorothy Sayers pointed out in her seminal essay on on education, the lost tools of learning, Latin does pattern the mind in the same way that I'm talking about Euclid patterning the mind. Now, another part of the education in beauty is to create beauty. And for that, we just have to be very accepting. And we have to, again, see this as a long-term process, something that we can approach calmly and without anxiety and with a great deal of appreciation and excitement for the child's creative process while guiding them to internalize these ideas of proportion and harmony and to have recourse to what we taught them since they were little about appreciating and liking what they ought to like. And for that, copying things is a very wonderful means. So for instance, whether it's in art or even in literature, that's the the Ben Franklin method that I talk about in the book, which you can read that chapter. But copying is great. And even writing out a poem is great work and a great exercise in beauty. And I think that the forces of ugliness really convinced us that it was not a good pedagogical tool, but it absolutely is a wonderful pedagogical tool. So whether the child is sitting down and attempting to copy a beautiful drawing or whether he's copying a poem or whether he's drawing a beautiful building or trying to construct a building, for instance, a birdhouse, a treehouse, a shed, a lean-to, a table, a stool, hey, whatever he could be building. And according to his age, you know, and proclivities, he may be good at it, he may be bad at it, but we should enjoy the process and we should really encourage it. Playing around with art materials, playing around with musical instruments, playing with ideas, especially making music with others, singing together, singing Christmas carols, singing folk songs, being in a church choir where the hymns have good harmonies, that it's the emphasis is not on spontaneity or emotionalistic music, 
but where the child and really everybody are delighting in the production of beautiful harmonies. And singing in parts is is actually just a really good education, serves you so well and provides so much delight later on in life. It's something that I totally missed out on as a child and only have captured late in life, but boy, I really do enjoy it. And it's something that is just not that hard to offer to our children. And if we ourselves don't know how to do it, we can find someone who does it. Folk music is very important because folk music also relies on tried and true patterns of melody. So even melody has to do with proportion. So even in just simple melodies, even in the simplest folk tunes, we're still exploring proportion and harmony. And then, because actually even when, even in a melody, the note that came before is still in the air when you're singing the next note. So there is a harmony there. People don't think of that as harmony, but the way sound works, it actually can be. And then folk music employs actual chords as well. And those are very important things to learn. And because folk music isn't at all individualistic, it has the virtue of downplaying the sort of, yeah, individualistic, creative characteristic that our society really extols, but that can actually end up being conformity in a weird way because, you know, there will be a person with talent and genius, but then everyone imitates that person and they're really imitating their individuality. Whereas in folk music, the aim is to keep the tradition and to occasionally make new things, but based on tradition. And so that personality aspect of it is very downplayed. And I think that that's all to the good when what we're trying to do is share delight in the objective nature of the harmonies that are created and the wonderful human experiences that are shared in this treasury. And I think that Folk music and sacred music share in that particular characteristic. So another way to make music together is in chamber music. And again, that chamber music prioritizes the making of music together and not the one individual personality. So it's very good for teaching children and it helps them overcome the nervousness that comes with the idea of performing and just allows the delight and the enjoyment of the music. If we skip this sort of education that I've been talking about, it will make teaching about beauty much harder. Even Roger Scruton doesn't quite make the case in his film because actually he is a modernist. He is a genteel modernist who is the willing recipient of a an inheritance and however contradictorily he did rely on the capital stored up by the ancients he's not the kind of modernist whose sensibilities are corroded beyond the point where they can prevent themselves from smashing everything good however that latter sort is the inevitable end of modernism so we must be alert And I have to say that in the end, Roger Scruton does rely on preference, on feeling. He's appealing to the sense that, well, these things just are beautiful, but he hasn't really convinced 
I mean, if you didn't already agree with him, I don't think you would be convinced by him. Even while you may find his examples of beauty more beautiful and his examples of ugliness more ugly, I still think that he doesn't quite make the case. He makes the case for that pre-education that the ancients talked about of liking and disliking what we ought. But if the person who is listening to him hasn't received that pre-education, they will not be convinced because they won't be able to be convinced. The subsequent education has to do with the things I've been talking about, order, harmony, fittingness, and clarity. And those things are objective. And I think that Scruton doesn't actually have the ability to get those things across. In the medieval times, when philosophers relied on the ancient categories, art is not this expression of the singular genius. It is work. It is, in fact, everything that is not a given and that has not been given to us. And it respects givenness enough to want to do a good job with its materials. So that teacher, that art teacher I mentioned at the beginning who said everything is art is wrong. He's wrong in a fundamental way. I, Auntie Lila, would shock that person by saying that even birdsong and sunrises are not art. As natural parts of creation coming directly from the hand of God, they are simply what they are. They are glorious. They connect us to God. They even do have order in a sense that the sunrise always happens or certain birds always have a certain kind of song. But they're not art because art means made by man. And we can tell that if we think of words that connect with art, such as artifice. Art means that man made something with those raw materials. Art, Aristotle tells us, imitates nature. We misunderstand the word imitation. If something is nature, well, it hasn't imitated it at all. Imitation requires doing, working, building, finding the proportions, the harmony, the order in things, and offering them to our fellow man as ways to look with clarity at something beyond them, namely the ideas of those things that would otherwise be unattainable by us in our human nature, because our human nature is dependent on the material world. If we have an idea that we want to convey, if we have an experience that we want to convey and we want to convey it with beauty, We have to use the material world to do that. Even speaking, even writing still uses the material world because as human beings, we learn things through our senses. So the way to help a child find things to be beautiful or to know when something is ugly, this takes time. It's an education in being human. So my answer to the question of what are the resources that I would recommend really is this education. We can't force it and we can't require that the child look at beauty and appreciate it as beauty, but we can lay the building blocks one by one as he learns by offering those connections that radiate truth, order, and harmony. A lot of what I've said here and a lot of what I write in my book are really dependent on so many ideas that I've had over time and so many books that I've read. And I really encourage you to delve 
into those resources, which are like prior resources, since I don't really have, here's a resource for teaching your child beauty, but there are these background resources that I, and I do reference them in, in the book and on the blog, the book, The Sermon Domestica. One book that I will recommend to you right now as a really great resource for your own understanding is David Clayton's The Way of Beauty, Liturgy, Education, and Inspiration for Family, School, and College. And I will link this in the show notes. It's a very, very good book. And one I really think that uniquely explains in a manageable form this connection between music and knowledge and truth And the one thing that I would disagree with him about is at some point here, he says, even if the child doesn't have this education early on, he can get it in college. I think that it's true that at any point, someone can be just struck by the truth and understand it. But in the normal way, and as I lay out so carefully, I mean, in the sense that I just have been trying to talk about these ideas for so long, every single stage of the child's development is preparing him for the next stage. So every part of the child's life, we can't just say, well, you don't need to talk to the child about things um, when he's six months old. He can't even talk when he's six months old. You know, you might as well just wait until he's developed the ability to talk. Well, the way that he develops the ability to talk is by being spoken to when it's he seemingly cannot make those sounds himself. And I think we all understand that. So I think it's a bit naive or too hopeful to say as a general rule that if the child doesn't have this education, he can get it in college. I think that our, our era has shown that the early education of the child is extremely important and that without it, we really will have difficulty instilling it later on in life. And actually the whole, all the work of John Sr. is based on his realization in teaching college students that if they had not learned nursery rhymes as little children, they will not understand Shakespeare in college. And I've talked and written about those things elsewhere. So I will just continue along now. But I will say The Way of Beauty by David Clayton is a very, very good volume for understanding in depth these things that I've touched upon on the relationship between music and art and beauty and truth. So that takes care of the Ask Auntie Lila. And now I'm just going to quickly return to this question of the podcast that we want to do together, my husband and I, Phil Lawler. And so we thought we might be able to have more frequent podcasts if we did this. So we thought we'd also like to have maybe a more casual format uh, while we still do specifically talk about one topic per podcast and taking turns where one time he'd be responsible for the content and I'd be his sidekick and help spur him along. And then another time I would have the main topic and he would be my interlocutor. And then we thought to make it just a little more casual and fun, we'd have other things along the lines as what I've introduced on my blog of corners. Um, so for instance, books, and I was thinking about this one time I was in his study and I was looking at the books that I've looked at now for, you know, 45 years. And cause I even was looking at his books before we were even married and I was saying, you know, Phil, 
you should really like talk about these books. They're almost lost. And, um, you know, when you pull a book off the shelf, you think, yeah, this book really had a lot to do with my education, forming my mind, straightening out my ideas, introducing me to topics I had no idea even existed. And I think when we first started out, we just thought, oh, these are the books that people have on their bookshelf and you can always get them. And now I think since there's been a great purgation and since there's also been a, an incredible inundation into the world of publishing of so many books and authors who maybe are writing about certain things but don't quite have the whole a grasp on the totality of what they're talking about. I just thought, you know, Phil, you should really just pull a book off your shelf and talk about it. So we thought we'd have a book corner, maybe talk a little bit about movies and shows that we've watched, although we don't do too much of that. But if we come across something great, maybe we could talk about those things. I could talk about the garden. He could talk about the bees. There's always bread making and politics. Whatever we want to talk about, we thought we'd throw those things in as well. So if you think this is a good idea or a terrible idea, let us know. We also are checking in our emails because we realize that the podcast platform doesn't really have any way for you to comment. So whether it's a comment on educating your children in beauty or whether it's a comment on the idea of the podcast or what we can do better or what we should stop doing, send us an email, lmldblog at gmail.com or philip.lawler at comcast.net. I will put those in the show notes. Great. Thank you very much. In the words of our patron, St. Thomas More, to his daughter, Margaret, Farewell, my dear child, and pray for me, and I shall for you and all your friends, that we may merrily meet in heaven. <laughs>